With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This edition of Where Did the Road Go is sponsored by Tim, Allison Cook, Eric Hervin, and Super Inframan. If you want to learn how you can sponsor the show, go to wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? Tonight, my guest is Zelia Edgar. How are you doing tonight? Fine, thanks. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're the you're the host of Just Another Tinfoil Hat on uh, YouTube, and you have a mm-hmm. you have a podcast as well. Yep, and it's by the same name on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. Okay, uh, give us a little history. Like, where where did you get into the 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 weirdness? Boy, I. See, I have been interested in the paranormal for as long as I can remember. Um, And I've been really seriously studying it since I was like eight or nine years old. So, yeah, it's been a lifelong interest for me. And then, you know, it kind of just from that interest in researching it, you know, when I was a kid, I joined MUFON for a while and worked as a field investigator and state director. And then I stepped down from that so I can kind of focus on my own particular brand of research. So, yep. Okay. And what was the first thing that got you into it? That's a really, really good question. Like I said, I had the interest like for as long as I can remember. So I have no idea what the first thing really was that got me involved in thinking about the paranormal or the unexplained. But when I was like eight or nine years old, my mom actually um, started looking into like Bigfoot accounts because she thought it would be kind of a cool thing. You know, at the time she actually didn't put any stock whatsoever into the paranormal or Bigfoot or anything like that. So she started looking to these accounts with me. And of course, I think there was some TV show like Unsolved Mysteries or something at the time and syndication. Mm-hmm. And so that was what initially got me interested was actually Bigfoot. And from that, it's kind of hilarious because you know, she brought it up as kind of like, oh, this is a fun kind of, you know, urban legend. And then she started looking at the reports and thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe there's something more to this. And so right around that time, I was absolutely hooked. I mean, the p- possibility of, you know, undiscovered creatures, cryptozoology was my first real love in the paranormal. And so from there, I got every book I could at the library on cryptozoology and the paranormal. And when I was 10, actually, I got to see um, Linda Godfrey at a book signing because, mm. of course, she writes on the man-wolf and dog-man phenomenon. Yeah. And that just, you know, absolutely changed my life because, you know, here's someone who mm. is has their life in this field. And, you know, then when I was 11, I went to a Chad Lewis presentation and Chad Lewis also is from Wisconsin. He does the haunted road guides to different locations and, you know, Again, just seeing these people, they, researchers really, I've kind of grown up with paranormal researchers as my 
role models. So that definitely cemented my interest in the field. Nice. So you said you were you were in MUFON for a little bit. Mm-hmm. How long? Boy, roughly, I think I was actively a field investigator for about a year. And in that time, I was a uh, state director for six to eight months, if I remember correctly. And, and how did you feel about MUFON? That is an interesting question. Um, I, I really enjoyed the training that I got. You know, that was really, really good. And I also really liked being able to actually be given reports and, you know, go out and talk to these people and investigate reports and stuff like that. There was a lot of kind of, I guess you could say like bureaucracy and stuff that just lots of red tape um, that I didn't really appreciate. And also too, the workload was really, really something. I mean, you have to do the same paperwork for a hoax as you would for a genuine report. So that got to be mm. a little bit. Um, ultimately, the main reason that I left is just because my interest kind of started branching beyond simply the UFO phenomenon and into all the paranormal phenomena as a whole. And I feel like, you know, and with MUFON too, there's a lot of great investigators, and a lot of great people involved with it. I think that the overwhelming mentality, though, is still looking at these different paranormal fields as exactly that, different paranormal fields. And that's definitely not my mindset anymore. I'm very much kind of looking for a unified theory between these seemingly different types of phenomena. And so I just decided it was probably, you know, time to step down and really focus on my research. Okay. All right. And how, how long ago did you start the podcast and stuff? The podcast is relatively new. I started that up in December and I've had my YouTube channel, I think since 2017, if I remember correctly, but I haven't, you know, when I first started, it was very sporadic. I'd do a video here, a video there. Cause more than anything, it was really just something to like, to do something with all this research. You know, I just, cause I have, I've been reading about the paranormal for over a decade now. And so, you know, I just kind of wanted to really do something and make something with, you know, all these ideas that I had on it. So the first couple of years I had my YouTube channel was very, very sporadic. Um, I'm making quite a few more videos now. So hopefully I'll be getting into some sort of schedule coming up here soon. And that's really been the last year that I've kind of been focusing on it. And and your videos are only 10 minutes long-ish, give or take. Mm-hmm. Yep, I try and keep them kind of shorter. So recently, too, my last um, set of videos actually was a three-part series on the airship flap of 1896-97. So I'm looking, too, to start doing, yeah, taking these kind of larger topics, these longer topics, and still making just the 10-minute long videos and doing them in several different parts. And uh, you said you had, had, you've had your own experiences, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's correct. So it's it's kind of funny because someone um, on one of the podcasts that I guested on, someone asked me if that's what got me into the paranormal. And the hilarious thing is that that thought never even occurred to me because I have, you know, for most of my life had different paranormal experiences. And the fact that that might be at all connected to my interest in the paranormal is something that didn't even hit me until I was asked <laughs> that question. I, I know, as weird as that sounds, but... <laughs> It's like, yes, paranormal experiences, paranormal research, they're, ah, they're not connected in any way at all, right? <laughs> oh, well, to some people they are, some they're not. Yeah. So so what, what kind of things have you had happen? Boy, that's, it's been, see, and this is another thing, is I never really considered that I had had probably more experiences than 
you know, the typical person um, until I really started kind of looking at it as a whole. Um, I've had several different UFO sightings, uh, different kind of haunting type experiences. And the earliest one actually, and it's one that I don't personally remember, was when I was two years old. And, you know, apparently I asked my mom what this light up ball was in the hallway. And I pointed at something that, of course, she didn't see. Um, so that was like the first experience. Um, there were also accounts when I was like, and again, I don't remember this, but when I was a toddler of uh, the screen door latching, when my mom would run outside for the groceries or something like that, you know, I'm the only one in the house and she would come back and the screen door is latched, you know, up at the top. So just little things like that kind of throughout my childhood. There is, you know, and I do wonder kind of at the whole bloodline or family relation thing, because the house where my mom grew up in, too, had very classic haunting type activity. And mm. also, too, she and one of her sisters had a very bizarre UFO experience there as well. Um, so that was all before my time, of course. But then, yeah, several different ghost type, you know, I use that term loosely, um, but haunting type experiences. The house where I currently live. Uh, I've seen an apparition in the house, um, had different, again, very kind of classic haunting type stuff, voices, sounds like someone's home, no one's home, doors oh, yeah. opening and closing with no draft, yeah. And it's also at this location, too, where I had one of my most prominent paranormal encounters, which was a sighting of orbs at really close range, and that had five other witnesses involved. So, so go into detail about that. That I'm really interested in. Sure thing. So... Um, these orbs, my sisters and I were in the house and our mom was actually headed home from shopping or something. And she called us. She's like, go outside. You need to look at this. And so we run outside and right over, I live on a corner lot. So right over the intersection and it's very keeling right over the intersection, surrounded by power lines, we see these four perfectly spherical, perfectly glowing orangish kind of amber colored orbs and it was a very it was an interesting night because the cloud cover was very very low and you could kind of judge where these things were based on the cloud cover and their proximity to the power lines i would say they're only you know maybe two or three stories up and they you know first off too they were not chinese lanterns i hate those stupid things um <laughs> these were just these perfectly glowing balls of light and there were four of them in this kind of parallelogram sort of formation and they were just slowly drifting in a perfectly it's hard to explain but it was just this perfectly fixed sort of motion over the intersection and so then they sort of just hung there and then one by one they just started blinking kind of slowly and then they'd blink faster and then they'd go out and then the next one and the next one and the next one but the best part about this is that we're all standing around watching this happen and all of a sudden the neighbor boy from across the street comes tearing down the street cuts through our yard and runs into his house and so of course we're thinking oh hey he he must have saw you know the same mm -hmm. thing and must have seen the same thing and so of course we walk over and um go knock on the door and we're like, Hey, uh, did you happen to see, uh, those, you know, those lights in the sky? And he's like, no, no, you guys, you don't, you don't understand. He's obviously visibly freaked out. And he's like, I was over at the schoolyard, which is some blocks away. He's like, this isn't the first time these things have come over. This is the second time they've come over. And so apparently he said that, you know, he saw four 
again, the same objects, four perfectly orange, perfectly round balls of light, drift over. And he said, yeah, it was weird, you know, but they went away. So what did it bother him? But then they came over a second time. And I guess that's when he must have imagined that, you know, the Martians were planning their invasion because that's when he decided to run home. Wow. Yeah. They just blink out at the end and that was it? Yeah, they just, it was this steady, just blink, 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 and then just like blink, 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 and then gone. And there was absolutely no, see, the interesting thing too is that there was no you know, form behind them. A lot of people, I think, you know, you hear like a fixed sort of formation like that. Immediately you start thinking, oh, lights on a craft. There was absolutely mm-hmm. nothing behind them. They left nothing behind. It was just, they were there and then they were absolutely gone. And and I had a, I had a huge UFO sighting at one point. And uh, when I thought about it, it was kind of like that where everything was fixed, but I realized I couldn't actually see anything other than the lights. And I find mm-hmm. a lot of these cases, it's just lights. And people will sometimes assume there's something there. Sometimes it blots out, you know, the background. But a lot of times you don't get a good look at that, of the thing that the lights are, are in front of, if there is anything. Yeah, and see, that is, that's another thing that really kind of started making me think about the UFO field a little bit differently. Because I feel like a lot of emphasis is put on cases that involved a definite craft, you know, something that appears to be hard and tangible and these, you know, the soft sightings of like light ball phenomena or light anomalies, there's really not as much importance put on those because they don't fit the current model of extraterrestrials coming here in spaceships. And, but yeah, there are, there's, I believe there's way more like soft sightings of the light anomalies than there are hard sightings of like things that appear to be craft. And I know Keel um, got to the point, too, where he even believed that perhaps the only real thing about this stuff were the light anomalies. Yeah. So, And lights are something you find flowing through all this stuff. I always used to say, you know, if someone sees a light in the sky and they're like, oh, E.T., and then they see a light in the house and they're like, oh, it's ghosts. And it's like, no, it's a light. In either case, you're seeing a light, you know? It's like, acknowledge it for what it is, an anomalous light. Stop, Stop putting, you know, assumptions on it. That's actually exactly the... Um the notion I used in my orb phenomena presentation. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying with that. Um, that these things they are, they're defined kind of by the things around them as opposed to what they inherently are. Yeah. Yeah. And light's one of those things that you find in almost every like people who have Bigfoot encounters, uh, mm-hmm. if they don't see lights at the time, you'll find that that area is known for anomalous lights and things like yep. that. So lights they 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 go through all this phenomena. They're one of the commonalities. Oh, yeah. Um, And the fact that they disappear, too, you know, always interests me because most UFOs disappear. They don't shoot off into space or anything. They just blink out. Yeah, that's and it's interesting, too, because you see that brought up by a lot of researchers. I know Sanderson brought it up in Uninvited Visitors. And, of course, Keel brings it up in a lot of his writings, too. And, yeah, it is. It's again, it's like kind of the further along you get with a lot of these ideas, the less sense they seem to make. True, true. Um, so let, let, let's talk about some of the stuff you've covered on your YouTube channel because you have some – the one I want to talk about first I was not familiar with at all, and it's called the Nodolf incident. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Okay. And th- you said this is a story you heard early yeah, on in your life. 
Oh, yeah. I pretty much grew up hearing this story. So my mom's family is from southwestern Wisconsin. And I spent a lot of time, you know, with my grandma, my aunts and uncles in that area. And it is this story is really part of kind of, you know, I'd say the folklore of the region, but it is based on and actually the story that is tossed around is a true account that happened in the mid 1880s. And so the account goes that there was a family, the Nodal family, who lived in a house on the side of the Platte Mound, which has um, the big M on it, which is this huge M constructed out of whitewashed limestone. Um, hmm. And so, yeah, they lived on the side of the mound. And the M wasn't there at that time, as far as I know. That was set up by the University of Platteville then for their mining program. But the really interesting the point that this story becomes interesting is that in the mid 1880s, he and his wife, Louise, Carl Nodolf and his wife, Louise had two kids, Minnie Louise, who was four and Louis, who was two. And apparently one night there was a massive storm and the parents waited up for a while to, you know, see if it was going to pass, then decided just to turn in for the night. They checked on the kids, doors and windows were all locked and latched and turned in for the night to go to bed. So close to morning, a massive thunderclap woke up the parents and they heard the children crying, but they couldn't find them. They checked their beds. They checked downstairs in the house and they couldn't find their two children who were ages again, two and four. And to make matters even worse, the doors and windows were all still locked from the inside. So there is absolutely no place that these kids could have gone. So they're checking, they're checking. Then they realize the crying sounds like it's from outside. So they throw open the doors and sure enough, there are the two children outside in the storm. So the parents run, they grab the kids, it's downpouring, they get soaked, run into the house, go to get dry clothes for the children, and the kids are still totally dry. So somehow they had been out in the storm, somehow they had gotten through the, you know, still locked from the inside doors and windows, and were out in the storm for who knows how long, and remained completely, totally dry. So... And here is an interesting thing, too. It's kind of, this is part of, you know, what has become the folklore around it. You know, every story you hear says that the two kids never spoke right again. It says that they um, developed a stutter and could never explain what had happened to them. Well, as I was told actually by Todd Roll, who is the head librarian at the University of Platteville and um, an amazing folklorist, um, that's actually not correct. They did um, stutter for that night, but then after that they could speak normally. However, the tricky thing is they could never exactly say what had happened to them on mm. that night. So even today it's remembered as the strange incident of the Nodolf house. And apparently the house too, which is, um, it's still standing. It's been pretty much abandoned though, um, but it's kind of in better shape than I expected. Um, I have some pictures of it. I didn't go trespassing, but um, yeah, it's still standing. And apparently yeah, it's proposed to be the, the picture you had up was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently it's also purported to be haunted. So, oh, of course it is. But, oh yeah. But no, that's an interesting case because again, and it is, it's kind of like a preset in the back of my subconscious just because I, I did, I grew up hearing it, but looking at it now, after going through a lot of research, especially, you know, John Keel stuff, there is a lot of real high strangeness with it. And of all things too, the thing that really stands out to me, I mean, a lot of people I've seen look at that case and immediately say alien abduction because, you know, you do. You have the issue of how did the kids get outside? Um, all the doors and windows were still locked from the inside. How, you know, why were they not wet? There appears to be some sort of missing time. 
The thing that really stands out to me is that single detail, though, that they were somehow still dry, even though they had been out in the storm. Yeah. And yes, and that, you know, the further along you get into these real high strangers accounts, for some reason, that is something that comes up a lot, especially with, of all things, the men in black. Um, There are several Mm -hmm. accounts I've come across where they're out in weather and they appear to be totally dry. I know there's a famous one from the Mothman prophecies involving Mount Misery, where they apparently walked up to this store in a horrible storm. It was all muddy out. And when they came into the store, their feet were totally, totally dry. Um, In some of the airship accounts, too, I know there's a famous one where the airship pilots, and this was in 1896-97, that flap, recommended that they take the witnesses to a place where it did not rain. So it's this kind of bizarre little detail that really, really stands out. And on a side note, too, um, Anaton is really close to Platteville, which is where the Platte Mound is. And apparently it's held that every now and again, you can't make it to Anaton. It disappears or enters some sort of other reality. And, you know, anyone who is stuck in this kind of in-between just goes missing. So that is also another kind of piece of folklore from that region. Hmm. And it makes me wonder, too, if, you know, the case of the Nodolf kids, if it is some sort of just like spatial or temporal displacement. Right. Out of phase with uh, normal reality for a bit. Mm-hmm. It could explain why they're outside. It could also explain why they're not wet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we don't know what mechanism would cause it, but I mean, we know things can apport. Um, yep. So I don't know. <laughs> it's Like I said, I hadn't heard that story before and it was really interesting. Yeah, well, it is. It's not really well known at all outside of even southwestern Wisconsin. Um, you know, I mean, the rest of Wisconsin, too, I haven't really heard it talked about much. So, hmm. Now, you mentioned airships, and you did a three-part series mm-hmm. on airships. Uh, there seems to be a lot of controversy as to whether the airships were a legitimate thing or if they were just kind of uh, actual inventors and, uh, you know, newspapers trying to sell papers, etc. What What is your take on it after doing the research? That is a very tricky question, because I do believe that there are, um, yes, probably many accounts which were exaggerated or downright fabricated by the newspapers. I think, though, that it's kind of like if you look at today's you know, UFO culture, I mean, there is, there's a lot of like tabloid stuff that isn't you know, totally true most of the time. However, I think that there is a genuine core to this flap of sightings. And two, the interesting thing is, because of course there was a lot of interest in building an actual heavier-than-air flying machine at the time. However, if you really look at some of these stranger encounters, these things are performing maneuvers, much like today's UFOs, that were that were and are physically impossible. You know, I mean, performing sharp turns at high rates of speed, um, going from a dead stop to just zipping off. And so I think that the probability that there is a genuine like human inventor that created these things that was responsible for a handful of sightings, I don't think I'm not going to discount it, of course, but I don't think it's very high. So, but yeah, the, the fabrication issue, that is definitely an issue with that time. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, yeah, selling of papers that was going on. So that is one of the pitfalls in trying to really get to the bottom of what was actually happening. I think the interesting stories are definitely the ones that fit the high string. I think anything past like like before the current day, um, when you get stories that are high strangeness, people aren't going to make those up. Like now they oh. might, 
because it's it's been brought out more. But back then, if they if they want to make up a story, they're going to make up a story that's believable. Mm-hmm. So the weirder the story, the more likely it is it might actually be true. I think. Oh yeah, well, and there are you know again with many of these accounts, there are just really little details that kind of add up to something a lot stranger. And especially with the airships, um, you know, that particular flap is intriguing to me because I do kind of, again, I'm moving sort of more, even from studying the phenomena of UFOs or cryptids or even ghosts, I'm kind of looking to understand the belief structures around them just because I think that there has to be some connection to you know, the objective reality of someone seeing something and the subjective reality of how perhaps we might influence that. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing with the airships is that I feel like it kind of captures this moment in time where you're seeing the transference of belief structures. Because prior to the airships, everything seen in the sky was really chalked up to, you know, fairy lore or religious portent or something like that. And of course, after that, it took a while to catch on. But we have our current extraterrestrial hypothesis to explain sightings of things in the sky. And there's a lot of comparison done between fairy lore and the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And I feel like though the airship, it's intriguing because it's this kind of sliver of time with a very distinct belief structure. And I feel like it kind of is, it's like the edge of the coin if fairy lore and the extraterrestrial hypothesis are two sides of that coin. Um, Because the intriguing thing about it is that the genuine belief of most people about the things seen in the sky was that they were human made. They thought that, you know, some inventor somewhere had figured out how to make a heavier than air flying machine and was just piloting it around the States. And the intriguing thing is that it seems like the phenomenon really was ready to kind of bank on that belief structure. And so you do, you have, instead of people seeing fairies or things like that, or people seeing greys or the Nordics, you have countless con- um, countless accounts of contact with people talking with what they were believed were human inventors. But the intriguing thing is that the pattern really remains the same um, across all of these different types of belief structures. And the thing that really stands out to me about the airship is something that I've seen too with fairy lore and the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And it's this kind of like symbolic display of the need for help. Um, It's something that I'm planning on doing a video series on just because it occurred to me that, especially with the airship and then too through extraterrestrial um, accounts from today, the ship is always crashing. That is like one of the first points of contact with these close encounter cases is the crash of the flying saucer, the crash of the airship. And that's something that kind of intrigued me. And then to take that a step further, um, and you see this especially with fairy lore and then also through the airships and then also with current extraterrestrial encounters, there is sometimes this request for help or this request for assistance. And so it's these patterns, again, like you were saying, the high strangeness stuff is, at least at that point in time, a lot more difficult to make up. It's these patterns which kind of stand out to me to show that perhaps there is, you know, there's a genuine core to this. And it's using the same symbols and the same archetypes, regardless of what form it's taking. I had never thought about that before. That's really interesting. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Huh. the uh, what am I trying to think of? It was something with the airships. There's uh, there's also Walter Bosley's idea that there was a basically a uh, scientific group that had this stuff uh, 
I think that was the NIMSA group, he calls it. Um, yeah. because, because there were plans for that stuff, but uh, that still doesn't mean there weren't uh, things out there mimicking it. Yeah, and that is, that's a good point, too. I mean, again, I'm not going to totally discount that some of these sightings may have actually been some sort of, you know, airship prototype or something like that. It's the ones that really you know, do exactly what our current flying saucers do, the maneuvers that they do, which should be completely impossible for any physical craft the, um, that really, really intrigue me. Or the extremely bright lights. Mm, yep, the searchlight beams. Yeah, I mean, that is an absolute parallel to our current flying saucers. Hmm. All right, well, let, let, let's jump into something else that I was only vaguely familiar with until I watched your videos, which uh, is the Enfield Horror. And I think anytime I hear this, I think Enfield Poltergeist, which I think yeah. is a is a, like, perfect poltergeist case because it has a little bit of everything in it um oh yeah but uh the enfield horror is something very different yeah the enfield horror is one of my all-time i say this all the time it's one of my all-time favorite cases pretty much every case is one of my all-time favorites for different reasons but this one in particular is just so weird that you know you really, if you're going at this again from a very like a conventional, you know, there's cryptozoology, there's spectrology, there's spectrology, there's ufology angle, you know, I, I would just end up becoming a little bit lost with this one, because it really has no set drawer that it can kind of be stuffed in. Yeah. Um, the story, yeah, it begins in um, April 25th of 1973 in Enfield, mm -hmm. Illinois. Um, the McDaniel family, the parents had gone out for the evening and they left their kids home alone for the night. And apparently they were watching TV when they heard something scratching at the door. So of course they didn't answer the door like any sane person would. And they just peeked out the window and saw this like four and a half foot tall grayish thing with pink eyes about the size of flashlights, two short, like taloned arms jutting out of its chest. And the strangest aspect of all three legs and i mean it is kind of, it is like a cliche just unnameable monster pretty much and so the um, at some point then the parents got home finally and the kids were just in a complete you know state of hysteria as well they would be i mean this thing apparently was kind of scratching around the perimeter of the house even tried to get in at the air conditioning unit and so as they're telling their parents about it who of course the parents didn't really know what to make of the event because, of course, the kids were absolutely frightened. But, you know, how can you really wrap your head around, hey, there's a three, you know, three footed monster with pink eyes trying to get in the house? <laughs> they hear something at the door. So Mr. McDaniel goes to the door thinking it's go he's going to be, you know, greeted by some sort of hoaxer or something and sees the creature. So he does the first thing he thinks of. He slams the door on its face, grabs his shotgun and returns and fires point blank at the creature, which responds, as many of these paranormal outliers do, by just making a hissing noise that's absolutely unfazed and bounding off into the night. So there were several, I mean, the thing, this one was really well investigated at the time. Um, apparently there were even some like strange wailing noises that were captured in the area. And there was an earlier account of another, like a neighbor kid seeing it as well. And it actually stepped on his foot and he said that it was slimy. So, and the interesting thing about this 
is that, you know, if, with a lot of things, people really think, especially with like monsters and cryptids, as something that lives in an area. You know, you think of like Bigfoot lives in an area, lake monsters, they live in the lake. Mm-hmm. However, with a lot of these outliers, they kind of just pop up, cause a ruckus for a few days, and then absolutely leave. And that's exactly what happened with the Anfield monster. After, I think it was about a week that people were still reporting it or experiencing the strange wailing noise, it just absolutely vanished. It bounded off into the night to torment who knows where else, because there really weren't any other reports of it from the surrounding areas. Hmm. And and isn't there sort of a little uh, weird extra on the end of that? Oh, yeah, there was. See, and this is the interesting thing that really takes this kind of way beyond the scope of just you know, a strange creature, is that um, years after the fact, one of the key witnesses actually died under very mysterious circumstances. Um, And this is is mainly from Lauren Coleman's blog, The Copycat Effect on Twilight Language. Um, He was shot, I think, point blank by his wife, and she claimed um, self-defense in courts and won the case. So, and there was really no rhyme or reason. He was just sitting on his porch and uh, she shot him and he died. Was was he one of the so, ones that shot the monster? I believe that he was one of the kids, if I remember oh, correctly. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong on that one, but I think he was one of the initial witnesses who was a child at the time. But yeah, no. And, you know, you see that a lot with um, paranormal accounts. It's like typically witnesses, there's just weird coincidences or very tragic endings um, years down the road. So Almost like, you know, a single event can have lasting effects. Yeah, I am. What what do you make of it after researching it? The creature itself, see, this is kind of, this was my main interest with the creature. is, And this ties into a lot of other paranormal outliers, such as like the Dover Demon, um, even the Kelly Hopkinsville monsters. I am under the impression that with a lot of the paranormal, if not all of the paranormal, it is some sort of manifestation or projection, you know, from what and for what purpose I don't claim to understand, of course. However, I think that sometimes, you know, the way that I look at it, especially with the Enfield horror, is perhaps there is a very set mold for some of these projections. You know, I mean, there's tons of accounts of Bigfoot-like creatures that fall into a particular mold or... Um, aquatic monsters that fall into a particular mold. And it's a very neat and tidy thing that we can say, oh, well, that's that's a Bigfoot or that's a lake monster. And we kind of just are okay with that and leave it in the drawer and walk away. I think in some of these cases, the projection or manifestation maybe gets mangled. Something gets lost in translation and it becomes something completely unrecognizable as life as we understand it. Hmm. Um, and with the Enfield Horror the interesting thing, the parallel that I noticed, because it was actually in, this one was really well recorded in Lauren Coleman's Mysterious America book. And I believe it's actually in the chapter with um, phantom kangaroos, which is a whole nother uh, can of worms. These phantom kangaroos that pop up, or I guess hop up every now and again. And the intriguing thing is that with the Enfield creature, People actually, that was one of the explanations that was put forth. Well, was it a kangaroo? But apparently, um, one of the lead witnesses, and I think this was Mr. McDaniel, actually had extensive um, handling of kangaroos at some previous point in time. He was like, that's not a kangaroo. That wasn't a tail. It was three legs. But I can't help but wonder 
what kind of like a mashed up image of one of these phantom kangaroos would look like. And I can't help but wonder if it would kind of end up looking something like the Enfield horror. <laughs> Interesting. It's int- yeah. yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's, it's kind of far out, but you know, and the Dover demon is another really good example. I just, if you look at this as like an actual creature, I mean, the Dover demon, of course, it um, was a spindly, you could almost say it looked like a gray alien, except it was kind of this, um, well, one of the witnesses described as having like a comic book peach skin tone color. And it was the spindly creature it had no nose or mouth. And the issue with that, of course, is, you know, how exactly does something with no visible respiratory system survive? I've seen a lot of people say, well, maybe it had gills, maybe it was aquatic, things like that. But the thing that stood out to me in that case was the description of the skin tone, that it was this exaggerated comic book skin tone. And people have described the men in black using similar terminology. They say they look like they were sunburned or something like that. Mm. And so with the Dover demon, and again, this is very, a little kitschy, I suppose, but I almost wondered then what a, you know, a flop projection of some sort of humanoid entity, such as a men in black, if it would end up looking a little bit like the Dover demon. Now, now tell people a little bit more about the Dover demon. Oh, sure thing. So the Dover demon is, and it is, it's a really interesting case because I feel like a lot of the times it's just kind of locked in with UFO occupants, even though as far as I know, they're actually no UFO sightings in the area, which that stands out too, because in a lot of these cases of, you know, encounters with weird creatures, there's a lot of UFO activity at the, in the place at the time. But with the Dover demon, it was actually radio silence on the UFO end. So it was April of 1977 in a town called, if you can believe this, Dover, Massachusetts. <laughs> and four people <laughs> saw this thing. And it really was. It was just this very spindly, I believe it was about four, three or four feet tall creature. And the most notable thing is that it had glowing eyes and absolutely no nose or mouth. And so it was. it's kind of a short-lived sighting. You know, four people saw it, and then from then on, there were no other, other reports. And there haven't really been any reports, as far as I know, since then. Um, it hit the media, though, and it was kind of turned into a big thing, um, as a lot of these were back in, like, the 60s and 70s. But the interesting thing, one of my favorite parts of the Dover Demon thing is the explanations that you get for these outlier sightings. Um I know that the Enfield Horror, like I mentioned, someone tried to chalk it up to a, you know, escaped kangaroo. Uh, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter my, is my absolute favorite. Apparently, an Air Force explanation was that they were circus monkeys that had been painted silver. But yes. for the Dover Demon, one of the conclusions that someone came to was that it was obviously a mangy baby moose. And <laughs> That one kind of takes the cake because I just, you know, it was the witnesses all described it in, you know, pretty, pretty good amounts of detail as this humanoid thing with a spindly body. They were all very particular that it had no nose or mouth and it had this kind of peachy, almost like melon sort of colored skin and glowing eyes. So as to I've never seen a baby moose, but I've looked up pictures and I don't really know how uh, how that would translate to that. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that with these sort of outliers that that I've always wondered about. So our brain kind of like puts camouflage in everything we see. I mean, when we're looking at reality, it's not what it looks like. It's it's all interpreted through our brain and it, it kind of creates these images. So yeah. what if we come across some weird bit of energy that we don't know how to camouflage and our brain just kind of cycles through and goes, I don't know, monster. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that actually, that is, see, if you look at it from the receiving end, that's, you know, yeah, exactly. And once it has a form, too, it may be a co-creation sort of thing, that once it has that form, you know, once that first person sees it, that, that wandering bit of, like, conscious energy, it's, it now has a form, and it goes about, and everyone else sees the same basic thing. Yeah, it's kind of imprinted with something. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. And eventually it just that, doesn't doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, and again, I started out from a very separate, very kind of conventional way of thinking on all of these different types of paranormal phenomena. But the further along I go, I just, I think that there is a lot more to do with the perception of it um, than merely just witnessing it. I think that the perception of it does have the ability to alter it in some way, if not define it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, I also wonder, uh, Joshua Cutchin's book on, on smells, uh, which I'm forgetting the name of, uh, he talks about... Uh, the Brimstone, oh, that, The Brimstone Deceit. That's it, It's on yes. the reading list. <laughs> it's, it's well worth reading. Uh, one of the things he, nice. he notes is that um, sulfur is a very common smell across all these mm-hmm. fields. And sulfur is generally things deteriorating. So yeah, I wonder yeah. if this temporary form that we're seeing smells bad because it's literally rotting as it exists. Like it pops into reality and it immediately starts decaying. I think Keel brought that up in the Eighth Tower. And I think that Sanderson kind of touched on it in Uninvited Visitors as it pertained to the Flatwoods Monster. And yeah, I think that's a great, great idea because, you know, again, these patterns that do exist between each of these different fields, they are there, you know, the evidence is there. And as to what it means, you know, there's got to be some sort of, when the same thing keeps popping up across ghost encounters, across cryptid encounters, across UFO encounters, across these complete outlier encounters, you know, you really have to start looking into that. And uh, you brought up the Flatwoods monster. What are your What is your take on that? Because a lot of people seem to have dismissed that as as probably uh, psyop. The Flatwoods monster is a very interesting case, and yeah, I had heard about um, that theory regarding it. And the interesting thing is that I sometimes do wonder too. It's kind of like there have been accounts of um, a crop circle hoax going on, and then the next field over, there's a genuine crop circle that just pops up. Right. So again, I do kind of wonder if mimicry is a part of it. Um, the Flatwoods monster. See, the intriguing thing to me is that that is like a perfect example too of like if you could ask for something to sum up a mid-century flying saucer occupant encounter it would be the flatwoods monster and that's what started i'm right now i'm kind of doing a lot of research on uh, the clothing of ufo occupants because it's something that really really intrigues me and the flatwoods monster is what kicked that off for me because it is exactly what we should be expecting i mean it was described as looking almost like robot-like in appearance and very non-organic And, of course, if we are looking at these things as extraterrestrial biological entities, we really shouldn't be looking for, you know, what is typically seen of UFO occupants, these things that appear very humanoid and also appear to have absolutely no protective gear. And so the interesting thing to me about the Flatwoods monster is how very much it is exactly what we should have been expecting, because it did appear to be some sort of robot or, you know, at the very least, a very hefty protective suit. Mm -hmm. But... The intriguing thing, too, is that um, there was, and it's funny because a lot of these really classic accounts, it depends on what book you're reading as to what angle they're taking. 
because I ran across the Flatwoods monster a lot in my early, very early research as a cryptid. And it was typically painted almost as like a lizard monster, um, which is kind of a very pop culture way of looking at it. I know that the initial um, sighting reports when they took to the news, the actual shape and the way it was described was completely just butchered by the media. Mm, And so it's interesting because it is locked in a lot with cryptozoology. However, it was um, very closely affiliated. I mean, there was a flying saucer, you know, quote unquote, there was actually a um, glowing pear shaped object, kind of this infrared object that was first noticed by the initial witnesses. And that was what they followed up the hillside before they saw the actual creature. And apparently, and this was detailed in Uninvited Visitors, there are actually several other sightings of these infrared objects in the area at the same time, all following a similar trajectory. Huh. That's interesting. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get into the super spectrum a little bit, because the infrared is something very interesting, because there are various uh, pictures and videos of things that are not seen by the naked eye that are very distinctly there. One of the ones that always stuck out to me, uh, what was it UFO Hunters, I think, had it on? And I didn't really care for the show that much, but the, the end clip that they showed was very interesting because it was a police helicopter. And following the police helicopter, they had their, their infrared camera on, and they had this object following them. And it was just this oh, almost wow. like swirling mass of stuff. And they're going, you can hear them going, what is that? And, they're, and they turn off the infrared, and they're like, there's nothing there. And then they turn it back on, and there it is again. And they're like, and they, they, they tell the guy, you know, turn, you know, turn direction or whatever. And they turn, and the thing just keeps following them. And I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Well, I know Trevor James Constable, too, um, had the, I think he used infrared and ultraviolet to capture a lot of the, he believed they were actually living entities Mm -hmm. um, in the upper atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, no, the super spectrum, it is, I first was exposed to this idea through Keel. um, And he touched on it a tiny, tiny bit in Mothman Prophecies and a little bit more in Operation Trojan Horse, but it was really the eighth tower um, that really had the whole overview of kind of what he meant by that and when i you know read the eighth tower i I know i told you before we were on air that actually i read that when i was 17 and first i read the mothman prophecies and then after that i read operation trojan horse and then the eighth tower and that actually was the one book that i actually had to take a little break for a while and rethink things just because you know every conventional theory on the paranormal that i had was just completely out the window at that point and you know, it is because largely of the super spectrum idea. And it's something that is very intriguing to me because it just really kind of, you know, I hate to ever say that something could explain everything, but the super spectrum idea really comes close that there are just, you know, and this is, it's true that there, we only really perceive a very narrow band of, you know, existence in both, you know, all of our senses. And that means that there are who knows how many different bands and like wavelengths outside of that and the potential idea that this is where you know all or most of the paranormal could i guess you could say technically reside just absolutely changed how i looked at things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we see so little and we see so little of what we know is there but what else is there that we don't know what is there 
Yeah, absolutely. That was that was the overwhelming vibe that just really hit me at that time. I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> regroup. But <laughs> yeah, the Eighth Tower is mind blowing, and if and I can never remember the name. It was actually published as something else, I think, in the UK, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, geez. Well, I know it was um, all the parts taken out of the Mothman Prophecies. Well, not all of them, but a good portion of the parts taken out of the Mothman Prophecies. Mm, okay. Which is just really intriguing to me. Um, but yeah, that, that book, it's, it's one of his shorter books, but it absolutely blew me away mm-hmm. when I read it. Oh, yeah. I know. I picked it up. I was like, oh, this will be a quick read. And then I ended up just like really just taking my time and just <laughs> you know going through it piece by piece because it's one of his more technical works too i feel like operation trojan horse is close but the eighth tower is you know it gets very very technical yeah yeah i guess it does hmm. um so when you get to like the idea of biological things like as ufos um mm-hmm. Do you think that can explain a lot of it, or do you think that's a small slice? My personal opinion is that it's probably a pretty small slice. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, every theory I have, I kind of move through the different stages of, you know, how much am I going to try and pin to this? Mm -hmm. Because I first was hit with the notion of biological UFOs shortly after really, you know, nailing down, okay, the super spectrum idea, this is what it is. And, you know... Then I read some of Ivan Sanderson's work, particularly Invisible Residence. Yes. And that was the first first exposure I had to that notion, which also also dealt with uh, the crypto-terrestrials, but that's a totally different thing. Um, and he gets way more into it in Uninvited Visitors with the biological UFO idea. And so when I first was hit with that, I was like, well, great. You know, I just pinned down the super spectrum notion. Now here's something else that also <laughs> makes sense. Um, but I think that's, that's kind of the beauty of it is there is so much variance in all of these sightings but there is definitely room enough in this town for multiple um, explanations multiple hypotheses oh sure because uh, i know biological ufos and this is actually another thing that to kind of further confuse the matter um, i've had at least two um, personal experiences with things that i would term biological ufos um, the most notable being there was one night i was watching an eclipse some years ago and an eclipse of the moon and it was like you know a beautiful night and had the window open no screen and kind of off in the distance you know you're watching the eclipse there were just these little tiny luminous things you know and they weren't like they weren't lights they weren't blinking or anything like that they were just these kind of shapes very very amorphous and i would describe them almost as looking like deep undersea fish you know like the bioluminescent ones and it was really, it was very strange. And of course, before I understood, like was exposed to the theory of biological UFOs, I didn't really know what to make of it. Um, So I do think that there is a likelihood that there are, of course, multiple, many explanations for every different type of phenomena. Um, With biological UFOs, I do think that the vast majority of sightings of things in the sky are not biological in nature, but I think that there are definite, definite sightings that would be considered as such. Okay, all right. Um, are you familiar at all with the Seth material from Jane Roberts? I've heard of it, but I'm not very familiar with it. Yeah, I'm I'm generally not a fan of channeled material, but the Seth material kind of stands out. And uh, at some point, someone asked Seth about UFOs, and this was like, I don't know, 69, 70, somewhere in there. And he said that they are visitors from other dimensions, and that what you're seeing is projections of consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> 
because yeah, that's I, the I only thing that, that yeah that's the only thing that can transfer from one reality to another and i thought okay so here he is in 1969 and these ideas are prevalent you know now yeah yeah it is it's interesting all these concepts kind of they take a while to arc back around you know but uh that that's one of those things there were a number of things with the seth material that that made me go okay normally channeling i just dismiss but this maybe there's something to it um and uh that would fit sort of the biological ufo thing too if it was like in the super spectrum slightly out of our reality but what we're seeing is a projection of consciousness yeah well and that's the other thing too is you know i just have to wonder um even if there are like say biological you know almost amoeba type entities could it be that they do kind of exist on the verge of our spectrum whatever's outside of it because a lot of these sightings they are they're very fleeting and you know almost ethereal in a way so, and I think that, you know, one explanation, does, even for a particular sighting, might not discount other explanations. True, true. What, uh, what's your thoughts on, on the whole alien abduction idea? That is a, yeah, that's a question I'm still kind of puzzling over. Because um, when I first read Missing Time, Mm-hmm. I was absolutely convinced in, you know, the concept of alien, alien abductions in the very classic, well, missing time type scenario. Right. Um, and again, that was, that was after Keel. And so trying to reconcile that concept, that concept, I mean, there was a time where I was thinking to myself, okay, there's ultra terrestrials, there's extraterrestrials, there's biological UFO entities, there's big, <laughs> like, you know, just the whole lot of it in just one never ending paranormal parade. Um, now with the abduction phenomenon, like pretty much everything else with the paranormal, I do think that there is a genuine phenomenon happening. I don't think it's exactly what people believe it is. You know, I don't think it's exactly like even through regression hypnosis. I don't think um, that's the objective truth. If that makes sense. Well, um, so the thing about hypnosis is this: it's not a memory recovery tool. It does not recover yeah. lost memories. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in Messengers of Deception. Um, Valet discussed some test where they did find out how easy it was to kind of conjure up um, the scenario, the abduction scenario, mm-hmm. in people undergoing regression. And these people were people who had absolutely no signs of ever having had contact with the paranormal in general, especially UFOs. Yeah. And so that was really intriguing to me when I read that. So. And I think they they did a similar thing on uh, the latest season of Hellier, which I haven't actually watched. Uh, where they induced a uh, abduction experience in someone using hypnosis. Yeah, and I think that, see, I think that the interesting thing there is that it kind of tunes into this idea of archetypes and symbolism more than anything. And, you know, the further I go too in researching, especially the UFO phenomenon, you know, the more importance I think is placed on symbolism and archetypes mm-hmm. throughout it. Mm-hmm. And so, the fact remains that there are a lot of facets of the abduction scenario that I think are of importance as to what exactly they mean, you know, and how much of it is objectively real. That's a question I really don't know how to answer. Yeah. And in the end, it may not matter. It's the effect it has on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the contribution to the belief structure. I mean, that was something when I read Messages of Deception, that just really, that was when I really started thinking too, like, as opposed to just trying to look at the 
experiences, it's the effect that they have that really is starting to intrigue me. I've, I've gotten to the point where I suspect that the abduction phenomena is similar to a shamanic awakening, and it's sort of being hijacked by people hypnotizing people to think it's mm-hmm. something else. Because you, yeah. see, you see a lot of similarities between uh, shamanic journeys and what people consciously recall from these experiences. Like, there are a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. And so I almost wonder if something's trying to wake us up and we're trying to pin it on something else and making it frightening. Yeah. No, I mean, and the iconography, too. I mean, a lot of it is nearly identical. I know that was detailed quite a bit in um, A Trojan Feast. And those parallels, again, they just, you know, they're striking and definitely something that shouldn't be ignored. There's, there are interesting cases with the the hypnosis though. Um, I know when I had Brent Rains on, I think he was talking about a case with Keel, but I don't remember where it was initially, but they had put someone under hypnosis and he started experiencing, like he, he started saying, oh, they're here now or something to that effect. And he went outside and there was a UFO out there. Oh, Yeah. I know what case you're talking about. I don't remember where it came from, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember where it came from either. Um, and Brent reminded me of that, and I thought, well, that's really interesting because I think a lot of this stuff has to do with altered states, and hypnosis mm-hmm. is an altered state. So people may be having a real experience while they're being hypnotized. It's, it may not be that they're recalling it. They're actually having it right then. Yeah. I mean, and two, the line between real and unreal, it does, it gets blurred or completely obliterated in so much of this stuff. Yeah. And I, I do, I feel like there is currently in the paranormal, there's a huge push towards being scientific with a capital S, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, and like really trying to crack down on, we need the physical evidence and this, and I'm, you know, I don't even technically consider myself a hardcore believer because I simply don't know what this stuff is. And I'm very interested in trying to figure it out. But I think that that notion of really trying to pin everything down and compartmentalize it, I think that is um, very dangerous because a lot of the time that just completely excludes huge portions of evidence oh, abso- um, that, you know, absolutely could turn out to be very important. Yeah. And, and the problem too, it's like, um, so we get some evidence, but what does it actually prove? You know, we, we can't prove it come that this came from such and such a planet. We may pr- yeah. we can prove potentially that we don't know what it is, but it doesn't actually give us that much more information. Yeah. Well, that's another interest, too, that I have is kind of Keel dubbed it the artifact game, where witnesses are given something mm. to prove their experience. And then um, in notable cases, such as the Betty and Barney Hill case, either it's taken away or in many other cases, including one of my favorites, which is um, the Simonton encounter, the alien pancakes. Yeah. The object in question proves to be absolutely mundane. And so it's almost like it's this um, kind of negative evidence that's given to the situation. And unfortunately, a lot of cases that makes most people, you know, investigators and debunkers alike, just throw out the entire experience in question. But in reality, I mean, it's happening so often. And so many of these people, you know, are, you know, typical, really good witnesses that, you know, there has to be something more to it than, you know, Joe Simonton just had a waking dream and decided to make really, really horrible pancakes and say <laughs> he was visited by aliens that looked like Italians. Right. There's got to be something more than that. And, yeah. and again, I think if he wanted to fake it, he would have tried to make some really spectacular, super flavorful pancake, not something really 
really lame, you know? Well, when he's on the record as saying they tasted like cardboard, because he did indeed try to eat yep. one. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> and he does come across as such a very genuine, this is what happened. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't seem like he's trying to push any crazy ideas or anything else. It's like, hey, they came down and I got a pancake, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and that one too, it's it's interesting because by all accounts, I mean, the judge that he even went to for his affidavit, you know, knew him personally. Was like, yeah, Joe's a, he's a trustworthy guy, you know, yeah. down to earth. Yeah, there he is saying that the aliens gave him pancakes. So so, so let me throw, throw this at you. At this point in time, do you think there could ever be video or photographic evidence of any of this stuff that would be compelling enough to, to mean anything? Oof. I'd love to say I'm optimistic, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really not. Yeah. I. It's a double-edged sword because on the one hand – any new photo or you know video that comes forward now, no matter how much rigorous testing it's put through, people say it's been doctored. Right. So you know, there's that aspect. And then on the other hand, there is, it seems like, the absolute inability of anyone to really capture that evidence. I mean, the amount of times that, you know, just even casual reading on this material, where you hear people say, well, I, my camera was on the seat next to me, I don't know why I didn't grab it, or, you know, I had my camera, it just malfunctioned, or I didn't even think to have it, or this happened, you know, I do this, I drive down this road every day, but that day I didn't have my phone on me. It seems like there is something where either these events don't happen when someone actually is ready, or, you know, there's almost like this I, and I, I hate to put, you know, notions or ideas on the phenomenon because, again, I, you know, who knows, you know, what the intent of any of it is. It almost seems like there's this almost psychic block where just people don't get the photo, almost like subconsciously they don't, they don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, on that note, too, I do sometimes wonder because I am a huge proponent of the Patterson-Gimlin footage. I think that. You know, and it's kind of sad because that's one of those things that's kind of, you know, shuffled under the rug because every time you bring it up, people are like, oh, wasn't that, you know, yeah, debunked? Yeah. And it's like, well, no, actually it wasn't. And it's really, really frustrating because it's, you know, an amazing piece of evidence. Yep. Um, but the thing of it is, is that that was captured obviously before digital. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes wonder now, too, if there is something with the charge of digital cameras and phones and things like that, that sort of disrupts whatever this phenomenon is. And that was something that Keel brought up too. And it's kind of ironic because I believe it was in the eighth tower. It may have been something else. So that of course was like in the seventies, I believe, where he brought up how we're jamming our psychic signals with all the electronics. And, you know, here we are 2020. I just can't imagine if he thought things were, <laughs> the signals were being jammed then what he would think of it now. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, Oh, there was something you just said that I wanted to comment on. I forgot what it was. Huh, cool. All right. Um, the uh, electricity plays a big part in all this stuff, too, I think. Um, so it, it's very possible that, yeah, it, it, it has some issue. I know uh, at the, the Seattle Demon, I think it's nicknamed the Seattle Demon House, Keith Linder's house, former house, um, when he had, is it Steve Mira there? Mara? Um, anyway, the, the EVPs they got when they were setting up their equipment, you can literally, it sounds like someone's just sitting there talking. And when they pull the cameras out, oh, wow. one of the voices says, what is that? 
is that a camera? And then someone, and one of the other voices goes, yeah, it's a camera. And, and they were kind of like, oh, like we don't like those or something like that. And then, oh, that's great. There's another point where they turn on the infrared and one of the voices goes, turn that off. We don't like that. Oh, wow. That is great. And it's, Man, you have to wonder if that's just the conversation every time someone tries to pull out a cell phone. <laughs> exactly. It may be right there. It's like the frequencies you can just hear better. Yeah. I know Steve said yeah. he had he had sent the uh the tape to a to an audio expert to to you know evaluate the EVPs. And the guy goes, "Well, I can't hear anything over all the people talking." He goes, "There was no one there." <gasps> oh jeez. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my gosh! You know that that's one of those things yeah. where EVPs can be absolute garbage sometimes, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, they're really good. Yeah, well, I think that you know a lot of this stuff, you know, because I've had I've had one dealing with um, a Ouija board, and you know it was just it was interesting actually seeing it in action because it really was it felt like you were like flipping dials on a radio station hmm. or something, and I know. Um, like Einstein even had some theory that dowsing worked because it was somehow channeling the electromagnetics of the earth through the conductor of the human body and it was expressing itself through the dowsing rods. Right. So I think that even with EVPs and all these different forms of communication, you know, it is, it's kind of like, I mean, Keel even had the phrase, the great phonograph in the sky. It's almost like if there are just tons of different wavelengths, all kind of fighting for, you know, space to express themselves. I feel like that's kind of what it is. But yeah, EVPs, they, those are interesting because I know there are some that are really, really amazing. Then there are some that just sound like just absolute jumbles. Yeah. Or it sounds like clothes rustling or something like that. And it's like, all right, well, that's nothing. Why, why are you focusing on this? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also possible that some EVPs are actually coming from the investigators, like psychically. I mean, this, this. Oh, yeah. Would make perfect sense for for some of them, especially as you get people who get more EVPs every time they go out. And I'm just thinking, yeah, it's probably mm-hmm. coming from you. You're getting better at it. You just don't know. Yeah. Well, that's I know that's the danger, too. I mean, people have done studies on automatic writing and even, yeah, Ouija boards, dowsing rods. And the subconscious is like a huge, you know, source of a lot of that stuff. So, and again, the dividing lines, it gets harder to tell and so, what's out there, what's in here. So, so what was your Ouija board experience? It was, it was really interesting. So I did this um, kind of group investigation at the German warehouse in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And it was really like headed up by Kevin Nelson, Noah Voss, and then Todd Roll was also there. And so... <laughs> Um, at one point during the night, it was really, it was cool because it was an open investigation. It was to raise money for the warehouse because it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright and it had kind of fallen into disrepair. And so it was, you know, there have been accounts of paranormal happenings there. And so it was open to the public. And, you know, we split up into two groups. And the best part is, um, <laughs> so when they broke out the Ouija board, um, oh gosh, I can't remember who exactly first brought it up. but. I know I was, I 
think Todd Roll was added at this point in time, and I can't remember who else was there. But so anyway, we broke it out. I'm at the board. It's my first time with one. I'm really excited because I've always wanted to try one. It's it's just one of those things I've never gotten around to actually find, like purchasing one. I passed one up at a Goodwill like some years ago, and I'm kicking myself about it because <laughs> I'm sure it was probably cursed. I mean, you oh, know, obviously, where else would you find a cursed Ouija board but Goodwill? Right. Um, so I was pumped. I'm just sitting there. The board is it was spewing out like crazy stuff. I mean, for a while there, we were getting like, there was a postal code that correlated to Poland and then there was a Polish name. And then we were getting, interestingly enough, like um, just random letters that kind of correlated. I think we got like, oh God, we got like text lingo or something. And all of a sudden, one of the guys in charge of like the actual warehouse, not affiliated really with the investigation, but he was like a board member or something, walks in. He's like, um... You think maybe we you don't need to do that right now. I think we're freaking some people out. And so at that point I look up and the entire room is empty. <laughs> <laughs> except for except for, you know, the people who were there for the like who were in charge of you know, the paranormal investigators. And so simultaneously as he's telling us, you know, I think we're freaking some people out here, the board moves. Todd laughs and he goes, Hey, when you said that the board just said BS <laughs> and it did. So that was that was my experience. That was like the highlight um, of my first time with a Ouija board was when it, it yes, indeed, it spelled out BS. Wow. <laughs> and then, yeah. So, did, 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 but no, yeah, it was. What, oh, sorry. What, what, what did it feel like? Did it feel like it was coming from something else? Or did it feel like it was coming from like the group of you? See, that's that's the trick with it. And, you know, I mean. I know that the two people I was with, you know, they weren't going to be like screwing around with it or anything, you know, making it move to different things. So, of course, I trust them with that. As far as, again, the line between the subconscious and whatever else you might be conducting, I'm not sure how to define that really. Um, I used to, like, well, when I was like in my mid teens, I had a passing interest in like, um, crystals and stuff like that. So I tried to do like, you know, use a pendulum. And even with that, it, it was very similar to that where it's like, you know, you try to be as still as you possibly can, but who knows how much of your just minute vibrations are causing the actual movement. So, I mean, for the Ouija board, it was a little bit different because, you know, in the fact that there were three people on it, I feel like there was a little bit more control over any one person's particular subconscious impulses. Right. Um, and it was, you know, it was spelling out just, very random random stuff that would correlate sometimes like we got the polish um postal code we had um, a polish last name and then it just flew to something totally different so if i was going to bet um i would say conducting something else um very hesitantly because you know i don't really know but simply to just yeah simply because of the randomness of it, you know? And I mean, again, too, that could have been someone subconscious. And the thing is, too, is a lot of people, they think, you know, you're channeling something, they immediately go into whatever their particular belief structure is, you know, yeah. ghosts, yeah. demons, extraterrestrials. I think with Ouija boards in particular, it could just be random chatter. I mean, our world is, it's completely immersed in, you know, so much electromagnetism mm -hmm. and just everyone's subconscious interacting. I think that a lot of this stuff is kind of just the random, random wavelengths. And, you know, too, I am, I'm very hesitant to accept channeled materials as well. I'm interested in them because of, you know, their effect on the field and culture. Mm -hmm. But as far as you know, what they actually pertain to, of course, I don't really trust 
the message, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of it is, it's kind of like the random chatter that then someone starts paying attention to and, oh, look, now you're getting more of the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so uh, I'll, I'll ask you a very hard question here to end this off. All right. So it's entirely possible that this phenomena all comes from us. Mm-hmm. And it's also possible that there's an other out there. Is there any way mm-hmm. we'll ever be able to tell the difference? That is a very hard question, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I genuinely hope so. And I think that, I guess in hoping so, I'm going to go with a yes. I don't know how we're going to figure it out. Um, I certainly don't know when. But I think the fact that this idea, you know, it's taken a while since, because Kiel was, you know, toying with his concept um, back in the 60s and 70s. And you know, it's taken quite a while. A lot of his books were going out of print, and now they're kind of resurfacing, and I'm really happy for that. And so it does take a while for these concepts to start even, not even be accepted, but just start breaching people thinking about them. But I think we are at a point in paranormal research, you still have a lot of diehards in their particular groups. Um, and I think that probably will always be the case. But I think we're at a point where a lot of investigators are starting to really look at this and be ready to ask that question. Um, because I know when I first was really kind of hit with that notion. It is kind of at first glance to someone who really does want to believe not to quote the X-Files here, but to quote the X-Files, someone who really does want to believe in the paranormal, you know, you're faced with this idea, maybe it comes from us. And my initial reaction was kind of, I was a little disheartened by that. But then the more that I, you know, started looking into this, it doesn't make it any less amazing. It doesn't make it any less weird. Um, by explaining it. And so I think that as soon as we can accept that we are just looking for the truth of whatever this is, whether it comes from us, whether it comes from outside, um, regardless of what our currently held beliefs are, I think if more people start looking at it from that way, we have to get somewhere. Okay. All right. That's a good answer. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so tell people where they can find you online. Sure thing. So I do have a website. It's justanothertinfoilhat.com. And from there, you can, um, it's linked to my YouTube channel, also my podcast, and anything else that I'm doing, um, appearing on other podcasts or radio shows, upcoming speaking engagements, um, articles. So yeah, justanothertinfoilhat.com. Do you have any upcoming speaking engagements? Yes, I'm going to be speaking at the Butler Paranormal Conference um, April 25th. I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm going to be talking on the issue of UFO occupant clothing, um, which, again, I mentioned earlier in the program. That's something that's really intriguing to me. So that's coming up. And then I'm also um, booked for the Van Meter Visitor Festival, which is in September. I'm really, really excited about that one. Um, I spoke there last year on the Orb Phenomena. We'll see. Oh, sorry. where, Where are they? Oh, that's in Van Meter, Iowa. Okay. And, and the, the Butler the one? Butler Conference, that's in Pennsylvania, Butler, Pennsylvania. Okay. Is that is that all you got coming up? Um, for speaking engagements, yep. Um, I'm always appearing on different podcasts, and then I've got my podcast on the Paranormal UK Radio Network, um, and that has new episodes every other Monday. And then my YouTube channel, too. Um, everything's called Just Another Tinfoil Hat, my <laughs> podcast and my YouTube channel. So that I should be having something new coming up here. So, okay. yeah, I just update that kind of every now and again. And people can watch your hairstyle change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> every time. Um, also, where did the name Just Another Tinfoil Hat come from? 
Okay, this is actually kind of a funny story. So I was looking to start my YouTube channel. And I, for some reason, well, names, you know, I love naming things. But when it comes to, like, choosing an actual name for something, I just, it's it's a big decision for me. Mm -hmm. So I was actually, I was bemoaning the issue to my mom. And I was like, you know, what should, I want it to be something cool. You know, I want people to know that I'm not, you know, just another tinfoil hat. And she kind of looked at me. She's like, no, that's perfect. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? She's like, just another tinfoil hat. It's perfect. I, was, I thought about it. I was like, you know what? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so Nice. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again. This was an awesome time. And I want to take a moment to give a special shout out to my Patreons, without whom this show may not exist the way it is. And to those of you pledging $10 or more, an extra special thanks. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Tim, Luke Osborne, Rob Drummond, Alex Whitcomb, Nadine, Damian Talman, Edu Camelhort, Tactical Therapist, Janet Bunderson, 36 Dingo, Maria, Jennifer Campbell, American Rambler, Kevin, John Rutledge Foster, Eric Citron, Ray Benedetto, Stone Wilderness, Andy McNamara, Sasha Lyorg, Matthias Sumby, Dominic O'Malley, Christopher Vaughn, Riker and Stark, Sean Cosgrove, Jose A., Roger Gonzalez, Craig Cicernos, Lindsay Jackson K., Alfred Tuttle, Kevin Shrek, Patricia Gaiaquinta, William Lovelace, Mark Brady, Chris is a hot dog a sandwich, and Carla Mahoney. Thank you all so very much. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. We will have Zelia back on sometime soon, maybe joining us for a roundtable. All right, so those of you out there who have stories, um, send us along. We're going to be doing more listener stories shows soon, and uh, new stories are always appreciated. Email them to stories at wheredotheroadgo.com. We also have merch available. I never talk about this, but we have merch available. If you go to the website, wheredotheroadgo.com, we've got shirts and all kinds of neat stuff with multiple different designs. So go check them out, and uh, if you like them, pick them up. Help us out. And now, courtesy of Magonia Exchange, the email group, uh, used to be on Yahoo, is now on IO. I am going to uh, give you a few weird old stories because we have a few extra minutes here. This one coming from August 25th, 1893 from Ferndale, California, the Ferndale Enterprise. And the title is Music in the Thunder. A startling and most remarkable phenomena occurred in Brookfield, Fairfield County on Sunday night, August 30th, which will be remembered to life's end by those who heard it. About the time for the evening service and when the congregations of the churches were awaiting the beginning of worship, it began to thunder and lightning in the distance, and the shower appeared to be rapidly approaching until it was directly overhead. Suddenly, there was a burst of musical thunder, sounding somewhat like a gong in different tones, and so marked were the musical notes as to be sweet and almost bugle-like. As quick as a flash, all the eyes of the congregation in the church were directed to the ceiling, and the suppressed cry of what's that could be heard all over the church. It's thunder, was the exclamation from all. All were startled, although some were more frightened than others. I have absolutely no explanation for that. That's, uh, that is a really weird account. I mean, I suppose you could put a UFO twist onto it and say that uh, it wasn't a thunder and lightning storm, but something kind of popping into our reality. 
but it also puts me in mind of some of the strange horn-like noises we hear occasionally now, uh, the booms and the weird hums and all that. Uh, so who knows what's interacting with our world that's not maybe coming through the way it means to. Or maybe that's exactly what it wanted to come through as. Who knows? All right. The second one, July 18th, 1940, from the Selma Enterprise from Selma, California. At 9.30 Friday night, the Selma Band Boys witnessed a strange and unusual phenomena in the North Heavens. One of the boys described it as a very black streak, apparently a quarter of a mile in length, which passed to the south with a waving motion, finally passing out of sight. This was undoubtedly a strange occurrence, and we leave it with the Selma astronomers to name and explain. Which uh, clearly hasn't happened. Um, That's weird. A very black streak. Again, I I really don't have a good explanation for what that might have been. You can kind of throw a lot of stuff at it. There's not, you know, it's a very short little clip it, so uh, it's not like we can get more info. And uh, this one is, this one's definitely weird. This is from uh, 1893. Um, The Times Pecanion, I think it is, from New Orleans, Louisiana, 13th of March, 1893. Oh, it even says it's a Monday. A Mysterious String. Captain Chadwick of the schooner Henry Souther of Thomaston, Maine, lying at Woodall Shipyard, says the Baltimore Sun, March 10th, possesses a ball of twine which has a history. One morning last September, in a voyage from Brunswick, Georgia, to an eastern port, Captain Chadwick noticed a string flying out from the mizzenmast of his vessel about the cross trees. It extended as far as the eye could follow it above the water. A man was sent aloft to pull in the string, and after it was all gathered aboard, it made a large ball of manila twine. At the time the string was discovered, the nearest land was 35 miles distant. As such twine is not used on the souther, Captain Chadwick was puzzled to account for its presence. The only solution was that it had been used to fly a kite or a captive balloon, which had escaped, and that it had somehow blown across the southern's mast. Mr. Chadwick measured the cord, which is 1,000 feet long. I mean, I guess. A kite? A balloon? I don't know. It's definitely a weird story. And coming from 1893. So, all right. Those come from the Magonia Exchange group on uh, IO, which they moved to after uh, Yahoo started dropping all its functionality for its groups a little while ago. Anyway, we're going to take you out uh, with some Spazar. Coming off their album that came out in 2018, which I think is just called Spazar, we're going to hear Duck and Cover. This band is from the Ithaca area we've had them in studio a couple of times if you want to go watch them play live they sound a lot heavier live too very different sound on the cd from their live performance so uh yeah here you go enjoy and we will see you next time
been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 